touch me. I happen to be wired for sound uh, this morning. Uh, however, what if we could wire all of us this morning? Every one of you got a mic. And maybe it wasn't just so much a microphone as perhaps a, let's call it a worshipometer. Or maybe a loveometer. Or a gratefulnessometer. Uh, I'm making up terms, but I'm from Texas and we do that frequently. George, George Bush told us that. Um, what if we could be wired in order to be measured from on high, from God's perfect measuring and calculation system, how truly we were grateful, how much, how authentically we were worshiping, how deep and true was our love for Jesus? What if that were to be on a readout screen in heaven? Then not only my voice, but every one of us would have a readout in the Spirit. And in fact, somehow the Spirit does know this thing without a worshipometer. Uh, he knows how authentic is our praise of Him. How passionate and strong is our desire and our givenness to Him. There are some days, I suppose, when we could also ask, well, how about on Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon or deep in the night on Thursday night? Where is the strength of my heart in its givenness toward him? How is the strength of my love directed toward him? Well, I want to propose to you that in our Bibles we have such a page. It's embedded. There is a loveometer embedded in the pages of Scripture. It's like one of those things you can put into a credit card. There's a chip in this passage. It's Luke chapter 7, and I'd like you to turn there. And there we'll find a, an electronic measuring chip that will measure, at least by which we can gaze, and by its facial and heart, can I say harshal, like heart, facial and heart recognition, it will be able to read back for us the strength of our love for Jesus. And so Jesus gave this passage for us, and he puts on, on that page, in that loveometer, Two extremes, he's two opposite poles, and we are to evaluate ourselves based on those two opposite poles that we see. We're going to find this measurement chip uh, embedded in a story within a story. And so I'd like to have us walk through the larger story in which Jesus, in this story, tells another story. And there we will find the measurement of our heart. And I hope when we walk out today, we can say... I want to be more like one pole than the other. That's the decision that lies before us. Luke 7, verse 36. I'm going to read through the passage and make comments as we go rather than reading through the whole passage at once. I happen to be reading from a printout of the New American Standard, and I also have the New International open in front of me because it happened to have been the Bible I studied this passage from. So uh, I'm doing both. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. And Jesus, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I realize we haven't gone, gone very far, but I want to set the, set the table, excuse me. I want to uh, set the stage for us here. Um, we should kind of visualize what is going on. This is a, a more wealthy person. The Pharisee were the upper class uh, of their day, and in their homes, or when they invited someone to dinner, they would have homes 
in a similar fashion as to some of the homes I see in Nalchik in the North Caucasus in Russia. There'd be a home and then a courtyard and then a wall around it and the gate that would open to the city streets. Now, when a dignitary, a rabbi, was visiting someone famous in town or someone noteworthy who everyone in the town would like to hear some of the words that might come from their lips, uh, they might be invited to a home. The table would be set out in the courtyard, and as would be typical, they would lie on the, the left side. They'd recline with their left elbow down, eat with their right hand, and they would be reclining at table. That's why it tells us that they were reclining there at the table. We picture people seated at a dining table, but they would be more reclining. But the gates to the city or to the, the street would be opened, and the common people of the city who were not invited to the meal would still feel it perfectly uh, appropriate to gather at least in the street or perhaps even around the walls of the courtyard to listen in because, after all, this was a distinguished guest who was invited to the feast. And the common people, everyone there would have a chance to observe the mode and method and ways of hospitality. There were certain things that were absolutely expected of a good Middle Eastern host. And so the people would have to observe both what the guest would say as well as how the host would treat that guest. So the people are there, and uh, Jesus is reclining at table. So far, the meal is going splendidly. Kind of like us last night or yesterday at the reception. So far, in fact, all the way through the end, everything went really, really well. Well, something's about to interrupt this meal that will create an absolute scandal for the people present and as it frittered throughout the town by everyone gossiping in the days to come. Verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, notice all the verbs that follow. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So far, the meal was going splendidly. And you hear the distinguished other guests, the, the friends of Simon the Pharisee, he is named later, as they begin to observe this scandalous behavior. I, I can imagine at first it was, <clears throat> uh, could you pass the pita bread and the hummus? And then there's <coughs> trying to get the attention of this sinner woman of Someone stares at Jesus and wonders, when is he going to do something? And the host's neck and face and ears are turning bright red as he looks at what is happening at this feast which he has to which he has invited people. 
But no one says anything at the moment. Everyone can feel it. Suddenly the food doesn't taste as good. Suddenly the music, I imagine some of the musicians even stopped in the middle of what the, the phrase of music. Verse 39. They may not be saying something, but they indeed are thinking something. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, by the way, I want to just pause right here because I'll probably forget to say it later. Um, I think there's a hint of grace in this passage for this man because his name is given. And Luke obviously interviewed people in order to get this story told. And I wonder if this man himself told Luke what he was thinking as Luke recorded it. It, it. There's a hint that maybe grace entered this man's heart. But we are not absolutely sure at all, and it may not be at all. As the Pharisee who invited him saw this happen, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, and he said it like that, if this man were a prophet, and in the parentheses that follows, and he obviously is not, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this one is who is touching him. She's a sinner. He would know that. He's no prophet. What is she doing in my house, doing this in front of my friends? Jesus knows what Simon thinks. And Jesus doesn't speak to her. He speaks to him. Interesting in the New American Standard, says, and Jesus answered him <laughs> as if Simon had spoken it aloud to him. Jesus knew exactly what he was thinking. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. If you're the host at that point, what can you possibly say? No, Rabbi, shut up. That's not an option. You've got to respond. And so... He said, say it, teacher. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, wow, that's wonderful. You have some word to just say it, teacher. You can kind of pick up the attitude that Simon has, not only toward the woman, but now toward Jesus. Say it. Jesus replied, a money lender had two debtors. That's why I love that line in the song, my debt is paid. It got me crying as we sang. My debt is paid. A money, man, a money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. Denarii is about a day's wages. 500 days would be like uh, two years' wages five, if you work a five-day week. The other, 50 denarii. So we've got a, quite a great discrepancy on the debt load each of these two characters are carrying before the money lender or the bank. When they were unable to repay, I like how the... Uh, New International says it just makes it clear, or at least it emphasizes a point, and that is, and they both were unable to pay. He, the money lender, the banker, graciously forgave them both. This was one of those non-government-sponsored bailout programs. How marvelous. A gracious banker who just says, you know what, we're going to write off what you owe us, and no money down, no more money necessary, it's done. We're bailing you out. 
he graciously forgave them both. So, now Jesus has painted Simon into a corner. And now he paints the final stripe and asks a question. So, which of them will love him more? Now, there should be a parenthesis, and then the Greek language should include, and this is a no-brainer. <laughs> but notice how Simon responds, grudgingly. Simon answered and said, I suppose, <laughs> in other words, I'm not going to get you to be like totally overwhelming me with the logic of what you just said. So, I suppose, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, in the Greek it says, bingo. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, you've judged correctly. Go to the head of the class, Simon, well done. He had him over a barrel. Now, let's freeze the frame as we're watching this movie. Step back. What has just happened? Simon's observed the scandal. He's responded in his heart both to the woman and to the master. And he has downgraded the master's uh, status and reputation in, the, in his own eyes, regardless of what the people may think of him, to someone who is less than a prophet. No way he's God in human flesh. He's just less than a prophet. He's maybe even uh, someone who's pretending. And then Jesus has backed him into a corner to give an answer. Now Jesus is going to draw a chart. <laughs> On the one side, he has the woman. On the other side, he has Simon. He said, Jesus, let's do a compare and contrast. And so here we have the compare and contrast. Verse 44. I love this tender touch that Luke records. And turning toward the woman... So far as we know, in this text anyway, this is the first time Jesus has given his attention to the woman, at least in this event. I believe by what he says next, he has obviously encountered her before, and she has met grace for the first time in her life. And this is her response to the grace he has given her in some previous encounter. But turning toward the woman, he looks at her but speaks to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. That has immediate implications for Middle Eastern culture when a guest enters someone's homes. You gave me no water for my feet. You didn't do the very customary, expected, what everyone else would do in our culture. You did not bring servants and water and wash my feet. You neglected even to shake my hand or take my coat on the way in. That's you, Simon. What about her? She has wet my feet with her tears. She'd wiped them with the only thing she had available, her hair. She, weeping over my feet, then muddied them because the dirt of the streets has now clung to my feet. And now with the wet, it's become muddy. And she's, oh, what have I done? And lacking anything else, she takes her hair and wipes them. You can imagine that to the onlooker this looks seductive or trashy or scandalous. You, Simon, gave me no kiss. 
the expected greeting. When I go to Russia, they, they, they warn me for my first time, now you may get even a man to come and kiss you on the cheek. You may get some men who will kiss you on one cheek and then the other cheek. Now watch it. There may be some men who will come and give you a smacker right on the lips. And some of that happened. It was common culture, an endearment, a way to show endearment. He said, you didn't give me the common greeting. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You, you did not anoint my head with oil. Some of you have visited or lived in Middle Eastern cultures and you've seen similar things like that happen. You didn't do the expected thing to show me some honor. But she has anointed my feet with this perfume. What has happened in this event? Simon has deliberately withheld the normally expected hospitality in order to shame Jesus. He has been deliberately, of choice, rude to Jesus as he invited him to this dinner. And he wants to show him up in front of his Pharisee friends. And this woman, first of all, an observer in the streets, watch what has happened. And she, having experienced in some previous encounter this grace, this marvelous forgiveness, this love, from the rabbi, the Messiah, Jesus, Son of God. She having experienced that, watched this rudeness given to him by someone who's supposed to be the clean and washed and knowledgeable, scholarly, religious, right leader of the city. And she says, this cannot happen. This cannot stand. And she goes and gets the perfume and begins to cry and weep and wet his feet and kiss them and wipe them. She does what Simon will not do. Because she recognizes who he is. And she recognizes what he has given her. Jesus draws the conclusion of this comparison and contrast chart between Simon and the woman. And he says, For this reason I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, Everybody in the whole event, everybody observing this, everyone knows she's been the gossip of the town. She's a publicly recognized, notorious sinner. Who knows her profession? Who knows what she's done? But she is known by all as the people you keep your kids away from. Her sins are many. They have been forgiven. For. Look at her. She loved much because of that forgiveness. Simon, or Jesus in this point, is a little gentle on Simon. He doesn't say, but you. Rather, he speaks generically in the next phrase. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What is Jesus saying? I don't think he's saying, Simon, you just have a few sins. She has a ton of them. She's got a long list and you have just a three-by-five card. I think he's saying, Simon, she recognizes 
the long list, the, the, the encyclopedic list of her sins. You don't see the encyclopedic list of your sins at all. It has to do with recognition, not the amount of sins. In other words, oh, she's just got a tiny bit. He's got a lot. She's got a lot. It's, no, the recognition of how deeply in debt we both are. Remember, go back to the story. Both were unable to pay their debt. One recognizes it. The other doesn't even see the debt. And then Jesus turns to her. And if he hasn't verbalized it before, he, he does so now with words of utter assurance from the God of the universe, garbed in human flesh, reclining at a table. He looks at her across his clean feet as they smell so wonderful. He looks at her across that and says to her, your sins have been forgiven. And if she wasn't crying before, she would have started now, don't you think? She begins, I think, just to luxuriate in this. But what do the people at the table respond? How do they think of the statement of Jesus? Verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, again, Luke knows, probably Jesus <laughs> has informed him, somehow Luke knows what they were saying to themselves. Maybe it was just barely verbal or verbalized out audibly enough. They began to say, who is this man? who even forgives sins. My friends, that ought to be the message that has trumpeted from the very first century across the time zones and centuries to our day and time. Who is this man? Who in the world is so good as that? To write off debts and forgive sins. And as they are in the midst of wondering this, and I think if you, if you were been in cataloging in Luke's Gospel, I have a circle with the number six besides this event. Do you know why it is? Because this is the sixth encounter with the Pharisees in the book of Luke. Every one of them, every one of them negative. And in the very first one, when Jesus forgives sins, their response is, who is this man that forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. They know that Jesus is claiming to have authority from on high. He is claiming to be God to write off her sins. Who is this? And I presume their response is also quite negative. But Jesus ignores their questioning, though he hopes they keep pursuing an answer to that. Verse 50, and he said to the woman, as if it's not been clear already, you don't forget forgiveness of sins by doing foot washing services. You don't get forgiveness of sins by weeping and crying. You don't get forgiveness of sins by showing up at a dinner and giving honor to a guest. What's the thing that is, makes it clear why she, her sins are forgiven? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. <laughs> Go in peace. Your faith has rescued you. Because it's connected to me, the Son of God. It is your faith in me that's connected you to the forgiver. Now, spend the rest of your life in peace. Relax. Rest. Enjoy. Be calm. God has wiped away your sins. 
And with that, uh, Luke ends the story. (laughs) And we go on to some other event. What has Luke done for us? He's embedded this worshipometer, this love measurement device in the text. And he's painted two people before us. And then I believe what he's asking us to do, the divine author of the text, not just Luke, but the Holy Spirit, is asking us who have heard this story, and I know it wasn't the first time for most of you, he's asked us, okay, so place yourself on a spectrum. Or at least put yourself against the two opposite, the polar opposites. And ask yourself, like whom am I? I wrote out some remarks because I wanted to say them pointedly, so I hope you won't mind if I look at a sheet and, and read some of them. Um, he wants us to, to understand and make a conclusion. And that is that those who recognize the depth of their sin are best able to love their Savior. Uh, put it in another form, the degree to which we understand our guilt is the degree to which we appreciate our God. I wonder if those loveometers were working on each one of us as we were wired this morning, if we were singing with half-hearted passion or with some sense of, man, we won the lottery. If we were singing out of, well, we do this on Sundays (laughs) and good people wear suits and, and dress up nice and get showers and come to church on Sunday. Good people do that. And so we ought to sing songs because good people do that. Or if it was, man, this is just wild, crazy, wonderful that we get to praise a God who's forgiven us. Like whom were we as we sang? Uh, did we come perhaps kind of surveying the audience and saying, you know, I bet there's some sinner people in here <laughs> and they're not like me. <laughs> I'm glad I'm clean. I'm glad I keep up with the rules. I'm glad... God and I are tight, and he's lucky to have me on his team, by the way. Uh, but there are other folks around here. I bet there's some in this room. You know, huh. uh, Jesus wouldn't even want them touching him. Were we like that? Or were we maybe more passively, not so aggressively critical, but more passively thinking, you know, I, when it comes to grace and the need for pulling off the Christian life, I, we can say, I got this. <laughs> I got it, God. Or we say, man. This is another day of desperate clinging to a God who loves and forgives me. Where along that spectrum are we in the way we treat God and the way we treat others? I think that's why Jesus has painted this picture and Luke has left it in the text for us. When we know how bad we are, we see how bountiful Jesus' forgiveness is. The more we realize how much we've been forgiven, the greater affection we show to him who forgives. If you think... You got, I got this. You actually got nothing. <laughs> Excuse my Texan. Um, if you think you're good, you don't need God. Healthy people don't as easily appreciate the skill of a doctor. Good swimmers don't care about the lifeguard. People with green thumbs don't need lawn care consultants. Folks whose debt seems very small to them could not care less about credit advisor, credit advisor advertisements on TV. They don't need help. Thank you very much. There, there's a lot of talk, and I think it is wise to consider it, about the burgeoning obesity of our national debt. 
so many thousands of dollars per every man, woman, and child in the United States. What if, what if we were somehow able to quantify the amount of our individual spiritual debt? Or the massive debt owed by New Village Church? Or all the people in our country? Or the unfathomable spiritual debt load carried by every single human being on the planet and by all of us cumulatively. We can't even take it in. And yet Jesus is the divine debt writer offer. <laughs> he makes forgiveness available to us all. You see, grace counts far more to those who clearly know they cannot possibly deserve it. Mercy means much. In fact, it means everything to all who recognize they could never merit it. It means nothing to those who mistakenly believe they've earned it. In fact, grace often offends the ones who think they stand in God's good favor on their own merits. The self-confessed, unworthy, unwashed, unrighteous, like me, relish and revel in and luxuriate in the outrageous, outlandish, hyper-generous, overboard, crazy good kindness of Jesus. Because we know how bad we are. He forgives people like that. He throws parties for stinking rebels who repent and who come home. Praise God. What about you and me? Are we amazed by grace? Or are we unfazed by grace? If we see we're sinners, we should be excessively, extravagantly fond of Jesus. We should shower him with exuberant thanks. As the title of my message says, guilty people make greater lovers. So who would we rather be like as I close? In one part of town is Simon, coat and tie, probably black coat, white, you know, the, the tux kind of thing. He has thrown his cloth napkin on the table, crossed his arms, barely shook hands with the guests as they departed, and certainly didn't touch Jesus. He's watching as the, the servants begin to clean up the crystal and the silverware and the china, take away the cloth napkins and the linen tablecloth and clean up the thing, sparkly and nice as if that event never happened. The only thing that remains of the, the banquet is that aroma of perfume, and he can't stand it. He retires to his very orderly, well-kept library, his study, where he has religious volumes on the shelves, where he feels so close to God as he reads his religious materials, congratulating himself. And there, with a huff of indignation, he sits at his desk and reflects on the events of tonight. Squeaky clean, so far from God. Or would we rather be on the opposite side of town? 
as this sinner woman, whose name's not given to us, makes her way back home, probably going down streets she once was a streetwalker on. Her face and her cosmetics are an absolute disaster. She's been crying her eyes out all night. Her mascara runs down. Her hair, while it smells really good, is like the mother of all bad hair days. She looks like a wreck, except for one thing. Look beneath the smeared mascara and you see a face. A face that is beaming because the master of the universe, the very son of God in human flesh, has looked her in the eye, indeed looked past the eyes into her heart and has said to her, your debt's written off. Your sin's forgiven. You are clean. And she knows it. She feels it. She senses it, and she loves that man. Who would we rather be like? Simon, who sits down and says, I think I showed him what I think of him. Or the woman who says, I think I showed him What I think of him, like whom are we? We got a chance to show Jesus in the song we're going to sing next. I hope Tim is somewhere and will come forward and lead us in it. There's my man. I believe the third verse of this hymn we're going to sing was written by that woman. You sing the words and tell me if you think so too.